The reading will be from Luke 2, chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. This is the the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Well, many of us know what it means to be on call for something. Maybe you've been tasked with this, uh, being on call in the past, or it, maybe it's even part of your profession. Maybe work as a physician or as a technician if something went wrong or breaks down in a plant or in a factory. May have been in the military on a post throughout the night. Might, might have been as a new parent or a parent of a sick child. There are different occupations. These are different occupations and assignments, but there's something that they all have in common. You're expected to be able to spring into action at a moment's notice. Whatever plans that you make for that time that you're on call must be able to be put on the back burner if you're called into action. The importance of you acting when you receive the phone call changes the way that you go about your daily lives. Now we can think a little bit of Israel, the Old Testament nation, as being on call, tasked by God to be ready in a way like this. Israel, although they were under Roman rule and reign at this time, was God's people. A people set apart for the purposes of God. A people whom God had worked on behalf of in the past, and a people who God had promised to work through in the future. The story of Luke 2 actually begins back in the beginning of time. Because since the beginning in the Garden of Eden, in the fall of mankind, God had made a promise to redeem his people. When Adam and Eve sinned by not obeying God, who had created them, they threw all of mankind into a tailspin of sin, into rebellion against this God, into a state of enmity with their creator. God would have been completely justified in crushing Adam and Eve where they stood for their disobedience. But instead, he had mercy on them. And he slowly began to reveal a grand plan of redemption for the future. Instead of destroying them as soon as they sinned, he was gracious in offering up a ram, caught in the thorns to cover their nakedness and sin. And he gave them a promise then in Genesis 3.15, Now, at one point in the future, he would send a savior who would crush the head of this serpent who had tempted them to disobey God. 
God would take it upon himself to fix the turmoil and the strife that came into existence in the garden. He would bring peace again. As time went on, God made covenants where he progressively unveiled more information about this coming savior. It soon became clear that the people and then the nation whom God had chosen to bring this Messiah through was in fact Israel. They had been given the word of God through the prophets to guide them and help them see the signs of this coming savior. They were constantly called to be watchful and ready because in God's timing, he would send that promised one. This proclamation in Luke 2 fits like a perfect puzzle piece against the entirety of the Old Testament promises and prophecies. This good news of great joy that the angels are proclaiming to these shepherds is exactly the news that Israel had been waiting for for thousands of years. This is what they had been on call for. God was now revealing another grand step in his plan. Now this is the fourth and the final sermon series in our Advent series, looking at the four appearances of the angels who were sent to proclaim God's word. And if you were here for the first three, you would have heard the three stories all speaking of the same news. Just to jog your memory, here's a quick recap. The first of the angelic announcements was made to an old man in the temple, Zechariah, from Luke 1. The second to a young lady, Mary, also in Luke 1. And then the third, in a dream, to a soon-to-be father, Joseph, in Matthew 1. This week, we're going to look at an angelic announcement given to a group of lowly shepherds here in Luke 2. So today, we're going to focus on the announcement itself in two ways. We'll look first at the proclamation of incarnation, and secondly, we'll look at the importance of this proclamation. So the proclamation of incarnation. Who is this announcement to? Who is it about? And then secondly, what did or what does it mean? As we focus on this passage, we're going to ultimately see that this proclamation is one that is central to human history and it's just as relevant now as it was when, the angel, when an angel of the Lord first appeared to these shepherds. Before we dig into this passage at hand, I want to take a quick look at the context or the setting of this passage though, to help us understand the text even more. Now, if you've read the Bible before, and specifically the Gospel according to Luke, or the book of Acts, because Luke also wrote that, you may know a few things about the author that, this, that the Holy Spirit inspired to write this text. Luke was a very detail, detailed and meticulous author who placed facts in his writings for a reason. He was highly educated, a physician who was scholarly and thorough in his writings. In the beginning of Luke 2, we actually see something that I thought was too good not to bring up here. And up until this year, when I, when I was studying for this, uh, this passage for this sermon, I had glazed over this seemingly simple detail, but it's actually very helpful to understand when looking at it. The detail is the name Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome who had issued the decree that a census had to be, would be taken of the Roman world. And this is right in the beginning of Luke 2. Caesar Augustus was not this ruler's original name. His, real na his name that he originally went by was Octavian, but he was a nephew, an adopted son, and the hand-chosen next-in-line ruler of Julius Caesar, who many of you may have heard before, too. 
And this is how he took the name Caesar. When Julius Caesar died, this man scrapped and fought to gain control of the position that his uncle wanted him to, be, to keep it placed in the family. He, Caesar Augustus, comes to be known as the founder of the Roman Empire, the first official emperor. The Senate in Rome gave him the title Augustus, which means holy or reverend or venerable. And it was at this point that, the, Roman, that the, the emperors of Rome started to be known by the people as gods who were worthy of worship. In fact, he was even known as the son of God to some. And that's a reference back to Julius Caesar. There were certain cities and states in that empire that adopted his birthday in September as the official start of the new year. And they gave him the title Savior. They even built a statue to this man, claiming that he was the emperor who brought peace to the empire. Ironically, that peace was brought about by him destroying anyone in his way. And the empire was constantly at war under his rule, growing its, its territory by conquering other nations and people groups. If you're anything like me, when you first hear those titles, the way that this man was elevated, you might raise an eyebrow, because that sounds awfully familiar. This Caesar Augustus is the man who was the ruler of the known world, and the, king of the, and the king of the universe is born in humility here in this story at this pivotal point in human history. It's, all, it's almost as if Luke says, check this out. I'm going to contrast what they, the elite Roman society, say with what's true, what God says. They will tell you about a man, Caesar Augustus, who became a god. He became God by military conquest in order to bring about peace by making everyone and everything subject to his authority. This ruler's ultimate goal was to bring himself glory and the people worshipped him. I, Luke, am going to tell you about the true and living God who became man in Jesus. He became man by humbling himself. He did this to truly save all that was subject to sin and death and bring about true and everlasting peace. I'll tell you about the true King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to whom alone will the glory go. The most powerful man in the known world was used as a pawn to bring about God's plan. Because of this decree that he issued, Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, where Jesus, the Son of God, would be born to fulfill the scriptures which predicted this. And this happened directly before our text here in Luke 2. So that sets the context for this. So let's look at the proclamation of incarnation. Obviously, we're told right away that this proclamation went to shepherds. These shepherds were keeping watch over their flock, guarding them from predators, and making sure that they stayed together in the same region. Meaning, they were somewhere near Bethlehem, but probably out in the hills and pastures outside of the town, because that's where the sheep would feed them. And I think it's significant that it, it was to shepherds who first heard of this news. They didn't live in the cities or work, and their work was dirty and not highly sought after. So many make the argument that they were social outcasts on the fringe of society. And I do think there's a lot of truth to that. We have writings that actually show that in the court of law, shepherds' testimonies were not allowed because they were often seen as unreliable. Shepherds were not the creme de la creme of, of civilization. They were often looked down on and treated as less than. Once again, 
God stacks the deck against himself just to show his sovereignty and his ability to do that which is impossible for man. He proclaims the good news to those who others looked down on. It lines up perfectly with the first three announcements as well. The first announcement was to an old man whose wife was barren beyond childbearing years, and they would have, that they would have a child who would turn many hearts to God. It's impossible. The second announcement was to a young woman, a virgin who had never known a man, that she would become pregnant with a son of the Most High. Impossible. The third announcement to a soon-to-be father, probably an insignificant carpenter by the world's standards, who was betrothed to that young woman, but he was, and he was thinking of divorcing her because she was pregnant, but not to him. But this was, he was told not to because their son would save God's people from their sins. Impossible. Now, here's the fourth announcement that goes to social outcasts who, even as Hebrews, are ceremonially, ceremonially unclean because of their professions as shepherds. They can't even go into the temple. They can't testify in the court of law because no one trusts them. And yet they're the very first ones to hear the official birth of the Savior who Israel has been waiting for for so long. Impossible. Why would God send an angel to tell these guys the news first? Why would God tell these irrelevant peasants about what he was going to do in the next steps in his plan? Put simply, because his thoughts are not the thoughts of man, and neither are man's ways his ways. God's grace exceeds human imagination, and I think that's why the shepherds heard the good news first. We, as human beings, might think that the most logical flow for this good news of great great joy to go to would be kings, to the governors, to the elites, because they have the most influence after all. Then it would spread quickly. Then from there it would go to the middle class and then to everyone else. That's not how God works. The message of the good news, which the angel is proclaiming, is relevant to everyone, including the social outcasts, society's black sheep, because in God's economy we have all fallen short of the glory of God, all of us. Every one of us needs his grace in our lives, no matter what our social status, because our spiritual status is bankrupt. Until the Lord gives us his riches by allowing us to see the glory of his son. So, although this passage went to the shepherd, or this message went to the shepherds first, it extends beyond just them. And I pray that we would see that it extends even to us now. Just like the other three announcements the very first thing the angel says to them is, fear not. Notice that every time, almost every time that we see a heavenly visitation to mankind, the natural reaction of human beings is fear. When people are given sights of things that are beyond our comprehension, when, we see, when they see angels or visions of angels in the Bible, they're scared for their lives. To add to the shepherd's fear in this instance, they don't just see the angel which by itself is fearful enough, but they're also surrounded by the glory of God, which is something that is hard for us to grasp or understand. By by way of illustration, and I'll admit that this will fall short, but work with me here, I wonder if you've ever been to a show at Sight and Sound 
or another theater where the sound and action takes place beyond just the stage which is located in the front. You sit in the audience and there may be parts or scene transitions and even parts of the scene that take place to your sides or to the peripheral. I remember seeing my first show at Sight and Sound where there were donkeys and camels and sheep and actors all walking down the aisles right beside us. Um, it was almost hard to figure out where to focus my attention because there were so many things to look at. It was sensory overload, and as a child, I was in awe of everything going on all around me. That might be a tiny glimpse of what these shepherds experienced, but imagine that times a million. All of a sudden, there's an angel standing beside them, and the glory of the Lord is shining around them. The glory, or the brightness, as it can be explained, is everywhere. It's everywhere they look. They cannot look beyond this light. The light. This burning light isn't radiating from the angel because it's also around them as well. The glory is coming from a different source, and the true source is none other than the one who sent this angel to make the announcement. It's as if, with this announcement, the glory of God, the splendor of majesty, the greatness of a perfect being was breaking in to the earthly realm right here in Bethlehem. That very night, and in fact, that's exactly what was being said. That is exactly what's happening. With This is the largest birth announcement of all time because heaven had come down to earth in the form of this baby in Bethlehem. The proclamation that this angel brings is good news of great joy that is for the shepherds, but it's also for the whole of the people. And I think this wording might capture what's being said in the context best. Remember, the whole of the people, God's people, Israel, had been on call to be on the lookout because God was going to send a savior, a Christ, a king. As Paul wrote in, one, in Romans 1.16, the, the good news, the gospel, went to the Jew first and then to the Greek or the Gentile. That's what's happening. The good news was being proclaimed to the Jews that on that dark night in a small and insignificant town of Bethlehem, the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, was born. The angel is telling these shepherds that now is the time. The Messiah is here. He was just born right down the road from where you are. He even personalizes the message for them by saying, unto you is born this day. This personalization of good news helps the shepherds understand that in fact it is important for them now as well as in the future. The angel is proclaiming the gospel to the poor as was prophesied in Isaiah 61. Everything that this angel says to them is important, but there are three titles of great importance in verse 11, which show that the shepherd, they show, it shows the shepherds that this baby who was born is no ordinary baby. The first title is Savior, and this means rescuer or someone who delivers people. Israel thought this baby was one who would rescue the people from oppression, oppression from different enemies and foes who had conquered them throughout the years. This baby, when he grew up, would do that, but it would be greater than they could imagine. The second title is Christ. This means the anointed one. At that time, in Israel, kings, 
priests and prophets were anointed with oil to show that they were chosen by God to serve in these roles. It pointed to how God's favor was with them. There was true spiritual significance to this visible sign. And the third title is Lord. This was the title that, that those with authority over others would be given. It was a title of respect for someone in the position of great power. Rulers and kings went by this title. This is the title that was used when they started addressing emperors by saying Caesar is Lord. The shepherds and the other Israelites who heard this news would still have a blurry view of what is being said about this baby. They probably thought that these titles meant that he would be a political savior. Maybe another king like David who would, who would bring about prosperity to the people of Israel. But either way, this is good news to them. God had still not fully revealed who this child was at that time, but he would eventually come to be known as all three of these titles, but in a greater sense. They thought of him as an anointed leader who would rescue them from earthly oppression. But he was the true king who was sent by God to redeem and rescue his people from the oppression of sin, death, and the devil. As we move on then to the importance of the proclamation We'll look at it through the New Testament lens. The shepherds who heard this announcement did not fully understand the significance because they were still in Old Testament era. They obviously knew it to be important, but they couldn't quite put the pieces together as God would continue to unveil the plan of his plan of redemption. That plan would not be completed until Jesus was grown and his work on earth was finished. The significance of this event does not escape the angels, however, and that is why we see them sing of it here. The original angel, as well as the host of angels, glorified God because they knew who Jesus truly was. These angels are supernatural beings who had a knowledge of who Jesus was before he put on human flesh. They knew him to be the creator by which all things were created by and for. They knew him to be the one through whom all things hold together. They knew him to be the one who God would reconcile all things through. They knew him, they knew that through him would come peace. And they knew that the fullness of God dwelled in him. Though angels also have a limited view of the fullness of future events, I believe that they knew this to be true all these things to be true of Jesus at that time. The glory that they sing of gives away the fact that he is greater than angels, as, written, as it's written in Hebrews. The importance of this announcement can be boiled down to this. God took on flesh in Jesus Christ so that man may be put at peace with God. This baby born that evening was to be the great mediator between God and man, and ultimately would bring everlasting peace. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, many of us are familiar with this, these verses. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. If we think of peace throughout history, it seems to be an elusive endeavor for mankind. Though many have stated that they desire to see world peace, man's sin 
overshadows that. And there's always turmoil and conflict in different areas of the world. We see it this very day in wars between different nations. In Ukraine, in the Gaza Strip, we see it in civil wars in Myanmar, Sudan, Somalia, and the list goes on. There are so many conflicts, most of us aren't even aware of them because the news tends to focus only on a few at a time. It seems as if peace is not the normal state of affairs in this fallen world. This was true then, and it continues to remain true now. But there is an even more elusive peace that's being spoken of here. The peace between God and mankind that was shattered in the Garden of Eden by our first parent's sin. This peace, or Hebrew shalom, that is actually being sung of by the angels. This child was to be the prince of shalom, wholeness, completeness, true safety, the absence of war at all. And this is who the prophets had predicted and told Israel to be on call for. And suddenly, on a dark night in the pastures outside of Bethlehem, one angel and a whole host of angels appears to sing of this peace on earth. There's also a bit of irony in this. The words heavenly host literally translate to heavenly army. God's army, his angel army, shows up to announce and sing of peace between God and man to a group of shepherds. We don't know how many angels there were there, but I, it, it, we are... To be sure, it is a number too large to, be, to count. Some believe, and I tend to be in this camp, that it was all of the angels who showed up to sing this chorus. It might have been every last one of them. This is an event so colossal that I think it lines up with what's spoken of in Job 38, which tells us that all of the angels sang together when God created the world. Here, God takes on flesh and dwells among his creatures to redeem them, and that's something that the messengers of God would rejoice in singing about. This is such good news, but I think some of us might be guilty, and I know I am one of them, of only thinking about the incarnation around Christmas time. I don't fully understand it. How God could put on flesh and live as a human being, so I tend to push it off at times, and rather than dwelling on the reality that this baby who was born in Bethlehem was both fully God and fully man, 100% God and 100% man, I don't think about it. Jesus never forfeited any of his divine attributes, but he continued to be fully God and fully man. To this day, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father in the form of a human being. All of the attributes of God are clearly seen in Jesus Christ. As Jesus says in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I think we would do well to meditate more on this subject, the subject of the incarnation, God becoming man. We have to realize that Jesus had to be fully human in order to justify human beings. His actions here, humbling himself to be found in the likeness of his creation, bridges the chasm that was otherwise insurmountable. When we begin to see what Jesus did, that he took on flesh, flesh that is like yours, and lived among people, the people who would eventually betray and kill him, although he was without sin, that he, like us, lived in a body that was from dust, 
that he, like us, was born as a helpless newborn baby that did all the things that babies do, that he, like us, grew older and was taught by his parents and others who loved him, that he, like us, got hungry, got thirsty, felt pain, and suffered as we do, but yet was without sin. The sooner we understand this truth, the sooner we may be able to see his glory. Because although this initial birth announcement was restricted to the shepherds and a few others, the greater announcement of the fullness of the gospel is for everyone. The gospel also went to the the Gentiles because this baby grew up and he lived perfectly. He kept the law of God in the way that none of us can. He didn't break a single commandment in his lifetime. He was literally perfect in every way. He never rebelled against his heavenly father, but rather was obedient. And because of that, he was something that might be very special to these shepherds like these, the spotless lamb of God, who could and did take away the sins of his people. As he grew and his ministry is recorded in the gospels, we see why he came. In Luke 19.10, Jesus says that he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus has always been and will always be in the business of being the Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Redeemer who is the Anointed One and is sovereign over all things. This is the real importance of this birth announcement. The birth announcement that would lead to a death announcement. When in John 19.30, Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed down his head and gave up his spirit. But even greater than that, it would lead to an announcement of resurrection. In Luke 24, 2, we read that they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. The tomb that Jesus had been buried in some 33 years after this original announcement. But when, when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were there, while they were perplexed about this, behold... Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men or the angels said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. Rise. This birth announcement would lead to a death announcement, which would lead to a resurrection announcement, which meant that Jesus had triumphed over sin and death. That he, in fact, had by his life, his death and his resurrection, brought about peace between God and those with whom he was pleased. A peace that was not possible any other way. As we read in the Gospels, after he is resurrected, the disciples and other believers would see what the angels already knew to be true of this baby. That he was in fact the Savior whom God the Father had not spared, but sent in order to be a propitiation, to turn away the righteous wrath of God from the people who Christ would die for. He was the peacemaker, which is why he is referred to as the Prince of Peace. I love what Charles Spurgeon said, and it's printed in the reflections of the first page of your worship guide. If you said to God, Lord, how shall I know that you have good will towards me? He, God, 
points to the manger and says, Sinner, if I had not goodwill towards you, would I have parted with my son? If I had not goodwill towards the human race, would I have given up my son so to become one of that race that he might by so doing redeem them from death? This is something that shouldn't be reserved to thinking of only in December, but all year around. Because with the first advent of Christ came the perfect life, the atoning death, and the glorious resurrection of the Son of God who had been sent to take away the sins of his people. And also the promise of the second advent when he will in fact return and consummate his eternal kingdom of which there is no end and nothing but peace because sin will be a thing of the past. Right now, God shows mercy to those who don't lean on their own understanding or trust in their own perceived goodness. What he requires of us is faith in his son, this son who was born in Bethlehem. The trust of these shepherds is made evident by their actions in verse 15. They waste no time in heeding this announcement of the birth of the Savior, and they go to find him. These simple shepherds must serve as an example for us, who, when we hear this even fuller announcement of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we too should turn to him, run to him, trust in him, and go and tell others of the good news that the Lord has made known to us. They that they too could trust in the finished work of the Son of God, Jesus, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Because God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you place your faith in him, in who he is and what he has done, then you too are are able to delight in this peace. The good pleasure of God rests among you, and one day you will sing in the presence of these angels and all the other saints glory to God in the highest because there will be peace forever. Amen.